being seated this morning, would you please grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. So if, if you almost go to the middle of your Bible. It's the longest chapter in the whole of the scriptures. We're going to be in Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. And the reason we're here this morning is this is going to be like a bridge sermon bringing us back into the book of Proverbs. We've been looking at the book of Proverbs and asking the question, what does it look like to live wisely in God's world? And one of my kind of customs or traditions on the first Sunday of a new year has been to do a sermon that looks at one of the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. As we're thinking about a new year and new habits, routines, and kind of looking back and maybe things we want to change, things we want to implement, I've always thought it's helpful in this occasion to capture that time to think about uh, some of the means of grace that God has given us, some of the spiritual disciplines he has uh, pointed us to where we can grow in our knowledge and holiness and righteousness. So this morning, we're going to look at one of those disciplines. And the discipline is the, the practice of meditating on the scriptures. The reason I picked that one is I thought, what biblical spiritual discipline in our age is, is needs to be recaptured, is, is helpful and relevant for us? And I thought, you know, we live in an age where attention spans are shrinking, where our, our shallowness, oddly enough, is growing, and our ability to, to focus and think deeply is diminishing. And so I thought this practice of, of all the biblical spiritual disciplines is one that is very helpful and relevant for us to, to recapture. And so I'm going to look at verses uh, 97 to 104 of Psalm 119. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. This is what the psalmist says. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding Therefore, I hate every false way. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this morning in this new year, we, put, we pray, Lord, that you would use your word to inspire and instill in us a call to action where we would seek to take hold of these disciplines that you have pointed us to, these means of grace that you have provided for us so that we can grow more into the image of Christ. We ask you to do that work for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. One of my favorite fictional characters is Sherlock Holmes. And in one of the stories about him, a scandal in Bohemia, we're given a little window into the methodology that makes Sherlock Holmes the top-rated fictional detective. Sherlock had just finished explaining where and what Dr. Watson had been up to the last number of weeks by drawing deductions from his left shoe and the lingering smell of certain chemicals on his jacket. And this leaves Watson dumbfounded with laughter because he can't believe that Sherlock could discover these things. And yet once Sherlock explains how he discovered them, Holmes wonders why anyone with two good eyes couldn't make the same discoveries. To which Sherlock replies, ah, but here is the difference. You see, Watson, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. And then Sherlock proves his point further through a little thought experiment. You've frequently seen the steps which lead from the hall up to this room, have you not? Frequently, Watson replies. Well, how often? Probably hundreds of times. Then how many are there, Watson? I don't know, 
Quite so. You have not observed, and yet you have seen. That is just my point. Now, I know that there are exactly 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. And the reason I share this insight from Sherlock is because the same critique of Watson could easily be said of us when it comes to our interaction with different materials, especially with the scriptures. Our eyes have probably passed over many pages of scriptures. Our ears have heard many chapters read, many sermons preached. But if we're honest, much of it has been of the seeing kind rather than of the observing kind. And to truly profit from the scriptures, we need to both see and observe what we see. And this is why the biblical practice of meditating on the scriptures is such a vital spiritual discipline. If we want to be deep and wise in a world that is often shallow and foolish, we need to recover the practice of meditating on the scripture. We need to not merely see, but observe the word of God by tasting and applying it to our own hearts and lives. So I want to help you taste more of the sweetness and digest more of the nutrients of the scripture by resolving to meditate on God's word. And sprinkled throughout the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, you hear the call to meditate on God's word. In fact, at the doorway to the historical books of the Bible in Joshua, kind of coming off of Moses' leadership, transfers it to Joshua. One of the opening things that Joshua says or is told is to meditate on God's law. And then as you open the doorway to the psalm, Psalm 1 starts with that call to meditate on God's word day and night. And then throughout the psalms, you'll see this call to meditate. And it's echoed two times in our passage, once in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day, echoing that call from Joshua and Psalm 1. And then another time in verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. So the question we need to ask and answer is, what does it mean to meditate on God's word? And I want to start by telling you what biblical meditation does not mean, because there are many forms of so-called meditation espoused by the world, and some are extremely popular. In fact, if you go on your app store and you just search meditation apps, you will find many apps that will improve the meditation quality in your life. But not all of them are biblical. In fact, some are extremely unbiblical. And so let me give you a couple of those ones that are not the ones I want you to practice. First, there is the, we'll call it the empty your mind form of meditation that is promoted by many Eastern and mystical religions. And the goal of this practice is to clear and free your mind of all external thoughts so that you can kind of detoxify your mind of everything that causes stress and anxiety and negativity. And in more overtly religious forms of this, the goal of emptying your mind is to be totally free of all external influence so that you can look within and get in touch with the divine that is within you. Now, biblical meditation is much different than that. It's not about emptying your mind. It is about filling your mind. It's not so much about looking within as it is looking up to the God who has revealed himself to us. In fact, to empty the mind is to misunderstand the nature of the true and living God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. Francis Schaeffer, the famous Christian apologist of the 1970s and 80s, he had this wonderful statement to capture who God is. He said this, God is there and he is not silent. One of the most famous uh, books that he had written, God is there and he is not silent. And what he was capturing in an age when people were kind of depersonalizing God is that God is a personal God who has revealed himself through the incarnate word, his son, 
who is the fullest revelation of the Father and through the written, inscripturated word, which has been written down for our testimony. To meditate as a Christian is to acknowledge that the personal God has made himself personally, objectively known for us. So to meditate is not to empty the mind, but to fill it with the word of God. Well, there's another form of meditation. We'll call it the name it and claim it form of meditation. And essentially it works like this. You you grab hold of a positive promise of God, positive being the key word. You claim it for yourself by repeating it or speaking it out into the universe and believe that it will come true in your life. And this has been popularized, especially through professional athletes. For example, I remember uh, following the NFL playoffs in 2013 when the Ravens made their run to win the Super Bowl. And Ray Lewis, passionate man, passionately wrong when it comes to his understanding of meditation on the scriptures. When he was interviewed after they won the AFC championship game, he gave one of the most passionate but biblically misguided interviews I have ever heard a professional athlete give. No offense to Mr. Lewis. I know I wouldn't want to meet him in the street. Uh, He said this to the interviewer. He said, when you sacrifice something for God, he will give you anything your heart desires if it aligns with his will. I'm glad he said that part. He said, God just kept telling me, you take this verse from Isaiah 60, I think it was. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, Ray Lewis. No weapon formed against the ravens shall prosper. Wonderful verse. It was not written to give the ravens the hope of a Super Bowl victory. Name it and claim it meditation. The reason it's misguided is because inevitably what it does by taking just these positive promises, claiming it for yourself, is in a sense it treats God like a genie and it treats the Bible like a lamp, that if you just rub it the right way, positive things will happen for you. Interestingly enough, name it and claim it meditation proponents seem to cleverly hide all the not so wonderful promises in the scripture, like ones about suffering and persecution and hardship. And and we need to practice meditation in a way that it prepares us for real life as it really happens, for the hard things as well as the good things. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. So we should meditate on the promises of God. We should appropriate them and we should apply them, but we should do so in a way that honors the nature of all the promises in scripture, not just the ones we like and want for ourselves. Well, a third form of unbiblical meditation is what we'll call the self-affirmation form of meditation. And this has been popularized in, in a humorous way by the SNL skit called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. Some of you probably remember this. And in one sense, it's poking fun at kind of the therapeutic culture of the time. And he would stand before a mirror and he would speak phrases like this. I'm entitled to my share of happiness. I'm an attractive person. I'm fun to be with. Now, I don't know about you, but these things are definitely true of me, but that's not the goal of biblical meditation. The goal of self-affirmation is kind of to speak positivity into yourself by repeating certain self-affirming phrases. Or as one supposedly Christian author put it, self-affirmation is about replacing a can't-do attitude with a can-do attitude. Sounds good on a bumper sticker, but it's not the full picture. Now, let the record show I am not against self-esteem per se. I certainly don't want anyone walking around detesting themselves. That's not what the Christian should do. But the Bible calls us to something different. It calls us to selfless esteem. Consider others more important than yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And even beyond that, the Bible calls us to God esteem, to consider God as supreme and central in all of life. He must increase and I must decrease. 
We're not to be given to narcissism, but to a selfless esteem and a God esteem. True meditation on the word of God should diminish our already proneness to self-centered narcissism and making ourselves the center of the universe and instead increase our love of God and our love of neighbor. So now that we've kind of cleared away some of the rubble of unbiblical meditation, let me try and unpack for you a definition of what it means to properly meditate on the word of God. Here's my stab at a definition. Biblical meditation is filling your thoughts with the food of God's word to savor and digest its meaning and application over and over again. So biblical meditation is not emptying, but filling your mind with the food that God has given us in his word so that we can savor it and digest it over and over again. As I alluded to earlier, the biblical practice of meditation is about filling, not emptying. To use the illustration of food, which the scripture gives us here, even with honey, how sweet are your words to my taste? They are sweeter than honey to my mouth. The illustration is that the word of God, it is that nutritious and delicious food, and that's what we need to stuff our minds with, fill our hearts with. And this food from God's word is so good, and it's so good for us that we need to savor it. We should not meditate on God's word like you try to eat a food that you do not like, right? Kids, you all have some food in your repertoire of uh, being fed that you do not like. For example, when I was a kid, it was broccoli and tomatoes and, and many other things. There was a long list. But if that was served, I knew I had to eat a thank you serving, right? You, you can't, you don't insult the one who made it. So my goal was to bypass tasting it by swallowing it as quickly as possible. Just get it in there, get it down, and just get it over with. The word of God is, should not be treated like that. The word of God is a very well-prepared, expensive cut of steak. If you want to truly enjoy that steak, you have to chew it slowly so you can savor all of its flavor. If, if you have any, any food, steak or whatever, when it is served to you, if it's your favorite food, you prepare for it. You get ready. You, you kind of stave off lunch that day or breakfast that day because you know it's coming. And when it comes, you want to savor it. That's how the word of God should be treated. The goal is not just to gather the food. It's to taste it. The goal also then, not just to taste it, but to absorb the nutrients of that tasty, delicious food so that your body can benefit and be enriched by all its nutrients. So we should not just savor it, but digest it as well. We should digest God's word like a cow digests its food. Now, I'm not not insulting you by calling you cows. I'm just saying you should digest food like a cow digests its food. The cow has what's called a ruminant digestive system. At first, a cow chews its food and digests it, and it cycles around in its stomach and prepare yourself for lunch. The food then gets regurgitated, and the cow chews it and digests it a second time so that it can absorb as much of the nutrients of that food as it can throughout its body. And so this ruminant digestive system is actually connected to that old English word to ruminate, right? You've heard that word before, which means to think deeply about something, to ponder it by chewing it over and over again in your mind, just like a cow would eat and digest its food. And so one of the most practical ways to meditate on God's word is to select a specific passage of scripture and ask very intentional questions about it over and over again. For example, take a text of scripture. Think of uh, Lamentations 3, 22 to 24 is one I've been uh, meditating on, which is great as I faithful as that hymn we sung is based on that scripture text. Take in a text like that and ask, what does this text reveal to me about the character of God? And just 
chew that text over and over again, asking that question. And the questions are kind of like the chewing motion, as it were. And then take that text and ask, you know, does this text reveal to me any ways where I have not measured up to God's character? Is it revealing any sinful ways in my heart and life that I need to repent of? And you keep chewing that text. And then you ask, how does this text point me to the gracious work of Christ? And then you keep chewing on that text, asking that question. Or you take that text and you ask, what comfort can be found in this passage or in this promise? And you chew that text over, asking that question. Or maybe it's a, a warning text. What wisdom can be found in this warning or this example, positively or negatively? Or asking the question with the text, how can I turn this text into a prayer of adoration or a prayer of confession or a prayer of thanksgiving or a prayer of supplication for someone else? By doing that, you will fill your thoughts with the food of God's word and you'll begin to savor and digest its meaning and application. We need the food that is found through meditation because as one Puritan said, our faith is often lean and ready to starve unless it is fed with continual meditation on the word of God. So we need to meditate on scripture. Now what I want to do is, uh, in this next section of the sermon is give you motivations and encouragements for why you should meditate on God's word and what the benefits of this practice can uh, reap in your own life. So what, what motivation does scripture give us to encourage our meditation on his word? Well, first, meditating on God's word helps to stir and deepen our affections for God and the things of God. To illustrate, one Puritan used the imagery of starting a fire. He said this, meditating on scripture, especially when our heart is often in the frame that it is, is like trying to build a fire from wet wood. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you try, you try to start a fire and the wood is wet and it's more smoke than there is light. And he says, only those who persevere will produce a flame with wet wood. When we begin to meditate, often our affections are cold and damp and wet. So all we experience is a bit of smoke. But then as we continue, as we press on and press in, a few sparks light here and there. But at last, if we continue to press on even further, there's often a flame of affection and joy that rises up to the Lord as we linger over a passage of his word. And look in our passage to see how the psalmist shows this link between meditation and affection. Look at verse 97 again. He said, oh, how I love your law. So he expresses his affections for God and his law. Why? It is my meditation all the day. So there's this sort of back and forth relationship between meditating on God's word and the heart of the person who meditates on it. The psalmist loves the law of the Lord, so he meditates on it. And the more he meditates on it, the more he grows in his affections for the Lord and his word. You think of that, that classic game of Pong, this kind of back and forth. I meditate, grows my affections. I have growing affections, so I meditate. It just kind of goes back and forth. And look also what the psalmist says in verse 103. He said, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Think of the illustration here he gives of tasting. You can, in many ways, come to discover that honey is sweet by studying honey objectively, like a scientist. You know, how the honeycomb comes to be formed. You can read the nutrition facts on the back of a honey jar. You can uh, see the reviews of honey on, you know, whatever website there is. You could even interview Winnie the Pooh about the joys of honey. (laughs) But you will not learn as much about the sweetness of honey as you would if you dipped your own hand in the honey jar and you brought that hand to your mouth and let the honey sit on your taste buds and relish in the delights of honey personally, yourself. To relish the sweetness of honey, you have have to let it linger 
over your taste buds so that you can enjoy the uh, enrichment of its sweetness. That's how we stir and deepen our affections through meditating on God's word. If we want our cold and damp heart to spark flames, we must persevere over a text. You know, there's, there's reading for breath in scripture, which is a good thing. You got maybe a Bible in a year plan. But I, I know many people, especially here as we've gone through the Bible in a year, say, I wish I could linger. I wish I could kind of sit and go, and go deeper. And that's where the, the spiritual practice of meditation is kind of the depth rather than the breadth of scripture. You should know that there's no rule in the scripture in the Christian life that says, you have to read the Bible in a year or you have to do this or that program. Sometimes you can just take a year and say, you know what, I'm just gonna linger over this passage and that passage. And, and that's okay. That honors the Lord just as much as reading through the Bible in a year. And the Puritans, who in church history really have been the loudest champions of this practice of meditating on God's word, they recommended two particular topics to stir your affections in meditation. And the the topics were this, meditate on the Savior, his character, his work, his person, and meditate on sin, its nature, its effect, its consequences, its impact. Now that seems to be a very odd combination, right? Savior and sin. And yet, you you have to understand that in the goal of our spiritual growth, especially as it comes to our affections, there, there's two sides to it. We want to grow in loving what God loves and in hating what God hates. We want to have our heart and our desires ordered according to the Lord's, which is why the psalmist, Psalm 104, or Psalm 119, 104 says this, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way, which means he has been informed to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And so, Tell sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That's the connection between meditating on the Savior and meditating on sin. So if you want to taste more of the loveliness of Christ, take a passage like Philippians 2, 5 to 11, or Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Those are kind of the uh, Mariana Trench, as it were, of the doctrine of Christ, where you could swim in there all your life and you will never reach the bottom of the doctrine of Christ. And the, the theological pressure that is comes from swimming in those depths almost bursts your head with the doctrine of Christ. That's a good place to go. Or to taste more of the bitterness of sin and understand the effects and nature and consequences of it, start with a topic like pride or coveting or selfishness and and find some scriptures that are related to that theme and then ponder some questions about it. Like this, why does a holy God find pride or coveting or selfishness so detestable? Or then ask this question, where in my heart and life Do I need to confess pride or coveting or selfishness? And in doing that, in one sense, it should send you back to the Savior. Sin to the Savior. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And when we know the bitterness of sin, we taste more of the sweetness of Christ. So meditate on God's word to help stir and deepen your affections. Secondly, meditate on God's word to help guide and inspire your prayers. I think this is one of the most practical outworkings of meditation. And here's why. Have you ever felt in the act of praying that your prayers are scattered and shallow or distracted and you start running down a rabbit trail in your mind and you're wondering about the grocery list for that day, the to-do list for that day, all the responsibilities, and you feel in all of that scrambling and shallowness and distractedness that coming to pray, you feel like a car with a dead battery. It just, it just won't start. You just keep trying to turn it over and it just won't start. It's not going anywhere. Well, meditating on a particular passage of scripture is a wonderful remedy to this kind of prayerless praying experience that we often have. Because when you lack motivation to pray or you don't have the foggiest clue what to pray, the best resource is to take God's word and pray it back to him. It's to take a text of scripture 
and transpose it into a personal prayer. So meditating and praying is like this holy kind of God-approved form of multitasking, where you're meditating and praying. You go back to meditating, you go back to praying, you kind of, again, this back and forth. And one practical way to see this link between meditating and praying is to think of every passage of scripture as a house of prayer, as it were. And inside that house, there's four rooms that you can walk into. And the four rooms are adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Maybe you've heard the ACTS kind of uh, acronym. And this is a helpful way to think of meditating on the text of scripture and turning it into prayer. So you have these four rooms, and there are four different types of prayers. So you can take a text like Psalm 23:1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And first, you enter into the room of adoration. You can say from that text, Lord, what a marvelous and good shepherd you are, that you would watch over me, that you would provide for me, that you would be near me all my days. And then you can take that text, Psalm 23, 1, you can walk into the room of confession and say, Lord, I have been like a wandering sheep this week from your shepherding care. I've been anxious. I've been worrisome. I lack trust that you would provide for my needs. Would you forgive me? And you can take that text again and walk into the room of thanksgiving. Say, Lord, I thank you. For you have shepherded me all my life. I thank you that you have provided the good shepherd for me who laid down his life for me. Thank you how you've been good to me in all my years. And then finally, you can take that text and enter the room of supplication. Lord, I wanna pray for this family in the midst of their grief that you would be a good shepherd to them, that they would know that you will never leave them or forsake them. And I pray for so-and-so that as they're dealing with this, that you would supply all their needs. And with that one little text, Psalm 23, one, you've now Pray to prayer of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And you can do that with pretty much any text in scripture as you meditate on it. So you've taken one verse, and in that matter of time, you've now found four different ways to pray. And you're not feeling like you're lost or don't have something to say to the Lord. So meditating on God's word helps guide and inspire our prayers. Now, third encouragement for meditating on the scriptures is that it helps you improve your application of the word to your life. So it's been rightly said that the goal of digging into God's word is not to gather information, but to experience transformation. God's word must be a journey from the head to the heart to the hands. The intended destination of scripture is not the head, right? That's a necessary and essential stop in the journey. In fact, it's the start because we need to learn to think God's thoughts after and think them rightly. The intended destination is not even the heart. Again, it's a necessary and essential stop along the way because we need to learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. The intended destination is the hands because as beloved children of God, we need to not only think as God thinks, but we need to act as God acts. As beloved children of God, imitate your heavenly father. So think of this specifically in relation to uh, listening to the preaching of God's word. Listening to the preaching of God's word is wonderful. In fact, I, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a wonderful thing. You'll never benefit from the sermon you don't hear. But yet remember the warning that James gives us in his letter. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Yes, be hearers, he assumes, but not hearers only. Be doers of the word. Our hearing the preaching of the word or reading of the word should lead to living out the word that is preached or heard. When a pastor preaches, it's as if they're scattering seeds of God's word over the soil of your heart. And for that seed to actually bring forth the fruit of application, Stephen mentioned the call to confession, it needs to be tended, cultivated, cared for. And meditation is one of the best ways to tend and cultivate and care for that seed that has been scattered. So chew on the sermon, savor it, 
like an expensive, well-aged wine, all the while asking the question, how is God calling me to live differently in light of this word I have heard? A wonderful example I have seen and, and heard of this is, you know, one family often would use the Sunday lunch after the service to go around the table and discuss what they learned from the sermon or what questions they had or thoughts that came up uh, as they heard the sermon. And I, I like that idea because I know my sermons are very forgettable. So I say, strike while the iron is lukewarm, right? So some practical way of, of not letting it just fall idle. Meditate on the word of God to improve your application. And lastly, I would say this. Meditating on God's word is wonderful because it helps sharpen our conscience and deepen our wisdom. And I mentioned at the beginning of this, the reason I thought of this discipline now is because so much in our world promotes a, a shallowness and a foolishness. That the attention span is shrinking. The Even in, in social media content, it keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter because people can't handle it any longer. And amusement reigns in our day. And, and there's a time and a place for that. But if you know the word amusement, it literally means to not think. And yet we as Christians need to love God with all our mind, be a thinking people, a thoughtful people. And so the Bible speaks of our conscience as that internal compass, which God has given us for morality and wisdom. So our conscience is designed by God when calibrated correctly to help us choose right over wrong and wisdom over foolishness. Think of Jiminy Cricket's advice to Pinocchio. What do you always say to him? Always let your conscience be your guide. There's one major problem with that piece of advice, and you can see it in the book Pinocchio if you've read it or the, or the movie. The problem with that is because of the effects of sin, our conscious compass doesn't always point due north. It's not always regulated properly. And so in order to recalibrate it, we need to sharpen it on the scriptures. We need to take, meditation is a way of kind of sharpening that, that knife, as it were, sharpening our conscience so that we now have a more faithful guide in assessing morality questions, wisdom questions. So look at what the psalmist says in verse 102. He says, I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. So the psalmist says, I, I'm able to stay on the path and not fall into this ditch or that ditch. And he doesn't mean this perfectly. We, we know we all fail in this. But he does mean it in that he does it sincerely and yet imperfectly and faithfully because he has sharpened his conscience on the word of God through meditation. So he's able to walk in line and not turn aside from God's rules because he's been taught from the Lord through meditation. And so the more we steep our minds in the word of God, the more calibrated our conscience will be to the will of God. And the more we'll be able to have this internal compass that helps us decide right, wrong, good, better, and best, wisdom, foolishness. And in this present cultural moment where ethical fences are being pulled down and plowed over and foolishness is being advertised as wisdom, we need a deeper wisdom and a sharper conscience. So I would encourage you in this new year, if you would taste and savor more of the sweetness of God's word and digest more of its nutritious benefits to take up the practice of meditating on God's word. Let's pray.